Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news paper since 1971. Bonus time on the Ben show. As I speak, it's Thursday, January 26, 2023. I'm going to read you a headline from today's New York Times. Just give you a sense of what's going on in the world today. Uh, and uh, I read this headline. I mean, I just laughed out loud. Uh, I'll tell you why. Uh, judicial race may alter Tilt of Wisconsin, abortion rights and voter maps at stake. And it's a race uh, about a um, the Supreme Court justice race uh, in a very much divided state of Wisconsin. And so I read this article in the New York Times, uh, and just what popped into my mind is how uh, this parade, this procession never ends. If you're a political junkie the way I am, and if you're a lefty the way I am, and if you're worried about like the state of America like I am, and if you think that pretty much everything the Republicans represent these days, MAGA represents, is an effort to move us that much closer to what? Something different than democracy? Then every election is pivotal, and there's no end to it. And I feel like this has been the state of American politics since 2016, when Donald John Trump was elected president of the United States. I just feel like every single election is this huge showdown that no matter what happened in the election before, the fate of the country is at stake. So now here, ladies and gentlemen, a Supreme Court race in the state of Wisconsin that pretty much would never, ever, ever make the front page of the New York Times in a previous political existence, okay, is front page news. Why? Because if MAGA seizes control of the Supreme Court in, in Wisconsin, they can change the rules to what? Make it easier to throw out future presidential results so that they can reverse an election that has the Democrat the winner and they can make the Republican the winner. They can send a whole bunch of different electors to uh, Congress. Uh, to be um, to have the the say in who gets to be president, you know what I'm saying? They could just like legalize MAGA gerrymandering, which is already pretty much legal, I guess, in the state of Wisconsin, forever and ever and ever. It never ends. 
probably bring someone on uh, from the state of Wisconsin to discuss it. <laughs> That's it, folks. That's what I need. Another deep dive into some obscure political uh, election, as if I'm already not doing that on the local level. All right. And that's where we're probably going to be spending most of our time talking with my distinguished guest, who I'll now ask to introduce himself. So, distinguished guest, introduce yourself. This is distinguished guest Mick Dumkey back on the Ben Tarofsky show for appearance number, I don't know, what is this, Ben? Too many to count, right? It's a lot. Uh, you're one of the, you, you get a prize for being one of the most get, featured guests on the show. Nowhere near as much, I, I should point out, as the great Ramana Hussein, uh, your wife, uh, and sometimes columnist, who's probably the champ. No, Monroe Anderson is the champ, uh, followed by Ramana. Uh, and of course, uh, longtime listeners of Ramana Hussein's uh, shows know that uh, Mick is married to Ramana, and it's usually once every other show, she throws Mick under the bus. We all have a lot of fun. And, fun and that often happens <laughs> when she's not on the show as well, I might add. But yeah, it's all right. It's good to be yes, a running gag I, I, somewhere. I, At least I'm uh, not forgotten. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, all right. First things first, it's a congratulations uh, are in order. I've known Mick now for approximately, I want to say 15 or 16 years. And, uh, you know, I been at the same place all 16 years but mick he gets around uh and you have a new job and i think this is a really good fit i don't want to jinx anything mick uh but i'm really happy about your new gig and congratulations so why don't you tell the folks uh they probably already know it because they're all political junkies and they follow your twitter handle but anyway let's pretend some of them don't know this uh tell them about your new gig well, first of all, I think that we've known each other probably for close to 18 years, I'm thinking. It is 2023, and by 20, by 2006, we were working together. We helped launch a blog, politics blog at The Reader. That was, so doing my math, that was 17 years ago, and I'm pretty sure we knew each other and were starting to talk and so forth before that. So I'm going to call it 2005, Ben, when we first uh, really connected and uh, probably uh, started talking about local politics uh, in a parallel way to what we're about to do today. So not much has changed in that sense <laughs> in 18 years. Um, and I'm, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad we're both around to, to keep doing it. Uh, yeah, thanks for the invitation to have me back. And you're right. I just started a new job a couple of weeks ago at Block Club Chicago. Um, I am an investigative editor and reporter there. Uh, Block Club has done very fine coverage for a number of years now about Chicago and its neighborhoods, really uh, starting from the neighborhoods up, um, which is kind of a, a innovation, I think, um, at least in recent times on the way others have covered the city, uh, innovation and in complement to the way others have covered the city. So my new role at Block Club is to uh, help the the excellent reporters and editors who are there uh, to do more investigative deep dive work and to uh, try to help build a team that is dedicated to that, but also to partner with reporters who are already uh, working and covering the neighborhoods there. Well, that's going to be great. And uh, I'm a big fan of Black Club. A little shout out to Jen Sabella, another Mick Dumkey memory. One day, 
I was walking down the street, down Lincoln Avenue. Uh, I think I was going to Potbelly to enjoy a delicious dinner because uh, uh, my wife was out with the girls that night. So they, I was on my own. I hear my name. Hey, Ben. Hey, Ben. And it's Mick sitting outside a bar. I can't remember the name of it, but he was sitting uh, with these really young people. And one of the young people was Jen Sabella, very young Jen Sabella, uh, who at the time, I think she was your student or just been your student. I can't remember. Something like that at Columbia. Uh, where Mick used to be a professor. And uh, I joined him. I sat down. It was a very um, lively conversation. It was a lot of fun. Uh, and Jen Sabella, of course, has gone on. And she's one of the uh, publishers. Is that her title of Block Club? I don't she's know. What what executive name. editor. Yeah. So I'm, I'm pretty sure Jen um, is my boss now or one of my bosses. Um, not the way she greets me in the morning, but uh, yeah. Well, she's one of the founders of Block Club. Um, along with Stephanie Lule and, and Seamus Toomey. Um, so that's kind of the triumvirate there. But you're right, Ben. I remember that as well. Uh, you don't remember the name of the bar. I don't either. It no longer exists. But it was at the corner of Montrose and Lincoln in a spot that I think has had many incarnations uh, through the years. And uh, we were sitting outside, um, happy hour time, some Friday. And who should walk down the street but some... <laughs> dude in a bull's cap uh again in the category of nothing changing uh you know i'm, I'm now looking at ben also wearing a bull's cap so I, I uh, just, good times good memory i'd forgotten about that yeah i just picked up a new one by the way i i am to bull's caps uh what imelda marcos was to shoes and uh i think i got i don't know 20 i have no idea i lost count but i got the one the one i just got at the bulls game was hat night was so cool and a hat night at the Bulls games, they give away free Bulls hats to the first 10,000 fans who come to the doors. They better get there early because when Bulls fans, there's a giveaway, they're lining up. Uh, but um, uh, it's a super cool hat. So just added to the collection. All right, here we go. Before we take the deep dive, let's see how good uh, Mick Dumkey's high school trivia is. What high school did Jen Sabella and Seamus Toomey graduate from? What high schools do your two bosses graduate from Mick Dumkey go? Well, Seamus, I believe, graduated from uh, the same school you did, right? ETHS. Um, and uh, Jen graduated from uh, Mother Macaulay, right? Unbelievable that you know that. Yeah. I, I, I'm astounded. I, I, I've known these people for a while. So, yeah, they, they, know, they knew what they're getting into and they're hiring me. But, yeah, uh, dear friends before our uh, professional relationships here have Yes, reach uh, this uh, the latest stage. So, uh, yes, illustrious graduates of Evanston High School and Mother Macaulay. All right, let's take the deep dive. Uh, forget high school trivia for the moment, though it's always close to my brain. We may do a couple more before the show is over. Uh, so much political talk to to uh, cover uh, in Chicago, so we'll keep it local mostly. And uh, we'll, let's start with the mayor's race. Uh, wide open nine candidates. General thoughts, Mick, on the mayor's race. Well, I, my guess is that it is, hopefully it's an educated guess, but my sense is that it's still wide open. Um, nine candidates were almost certainly going to a runoff. All of your listeners know, but we'll just reiterate, you don't get 50% plus one in the first round, then the top two finishers go on to a runoff um, in April. And so with nine candidates, it's, and these particular nine candidates and uh, the positions they're taking and 
the way they're attacking each other, the way they're copying each other alternately. Um, it doesn't look like anyone's going to get that uh, straight majority in the first round. So that's the first thing. We're almost definitely looking at a runoff scenario. So everyone is trying to get, you know, what they need to get into round two. And with this many candidates, Ben, you know, you could get less than a third of the vote, right? You get 25% and get 20% to the vote even and potentially sneak into that runoff. So that's the name of the game. It looks to me like it's down to uh, probably down to a handful of candidates. Uh, the, the mayor herself, uh, Brandon Johnson, uh, Chewy Garcia, and Paul Vallis, uh, with with Willie Wilson also being a wild card in the mix. And, and that's not to put down the others. Somebody else could have a late surge. I think at this time four years ago, most of us did not anticipate that Lori Lightfoot was going to be the top finisher or the mayor. Um, certainly not in early January four years ago. Uh, so just saying it could still be open, but that's that's kind of the way I see it. Is it's we're looking at uh, four, maybe five of the candidates contending for those two runoff uh, slots. What do you think? Uh, well, yeah, my my standard line for the last year is. Uh, uh, it will be a runoff. I worked always worked on the assumption that Mayor Lori Lightfoot would be in that runoff uh, because I clung to the notion that Chicagoans are very reluctant. I picked this up from you, I think. Uh, very reluctant, very cautious, very conservative in many ways. Very, so they're reluctant to let go of a mayor. Okay, even if they don't like the mayor, the mayor's unpopular, it's just it's kind of hard, you know, to let go of that mayor. And I've seen it in even in campaigns where the mayor lost. I mean, there was no reason for it to be close. Michael Belanek in 1979. Oh, my God, Chicago. That was a low point for you. That like 48% of you voted for Michael Belanek, who may have been the worst mayor the city of Chicago has ever had. You can make that argument in that case, Mick. I know you were a young man in, uh, in the public schools of Grand Rapids. Is that where it was at the time? So you weren't following oh, man, that you one. Just, you just failed. You, you knew the high schools of Jen and Seamus. You didn't know my high school. You didn't even have the, the town right, dude. Come on, well, man. Just, man. I, 18 years, 18 years of, of friendship and professional working together. I was not in Grand Rapids. Uh, uh, St. Joseph, Michigan, if we're shouting out uh, our hometowns and high schools. So, yes, uh, I was still in grade school in <laughs> you were still in grade Michigan school. So when, when I know, Michael Belandic was reelected. I yes. want to apologize to absolutely everyone in the state of Michigan, but really, there's two cities I know of in Michigan, uh, Detroit and Traverse City. And other than that, I really don't know anything about it. And it's I all the same. After I can't stand team, any yeah. of the football teams, or the sports teams from Michigan. All right. but before, So my point is, I always assumed that Lori Leifel would be in the runoff. Mick, I don't know if that's the case anymore. We'll get into that in a little while. Um, I always talk about lanes, like the lane you have to drive to to make that 15% to 20%, whatever it is, your point is well taken. It'll definitely be low, lower than a third. Uh, I think last time around, Tony Preckwinkle and Lori Lightfoot made the runoff. And I, I wish I had written this down. I think we each were around 15% of the vote or something like that. It's, so I think it may be a little higher this time around. Uh, but so I've always thought Paul Vallis has the obvious lane. He's the MAGA man. Uh, you look at the Trump vote in the city. You look at the Rauner vote in the city. Uh, that's going to Paul Vallis. You look at the Darren Bailey vote in the city, th those are Paul Vallis voters. So that's 15% right there, Mick. Uh, and then, you know, the lakefront liberals are all confused half the time when it comes to 
they're way more conservative than they used to be. So we got to stop thinking of them as liberals at all. So that could be uh, his vote as well. Uh, and uh, Brandon Johnson's got lefties. And, and uh, Jesus Chuy Garcia is very popular with Hispanics. They have their lanes, Mick. Everybody, all these candidates that I just named have lanes to the runoff. I'm a little uncertain about uh, the other candidates. I don't see it unless, and this is the wild card. I actually said this to her when she was on the show. Um, Sophia King. I mean, it's kind of late, but if a Barack Obama endorsed her, <laughs> move her to the top. That's a lane yeah, right that, there. That shake things, shakes yeah. things up if that happens. No, I totally agree with you. You do need to have a base. You're talking about lanes. I think of a base. Um, where do you start? Um, the mayor doesn't have an obvious base, except that she's a known quantity. And you're right. It's not only, I, I agree with you about people are reluctant to vote against a, a sitting mayor, but I also would extend that. I just think generally it's very hard to beat an incumbent. Um, it's a known quantity. People at the end of the day are often very nervous about, you know, somebody they don't know. It's the devil, you know, kind of argument. Um, unless people, there's a, there's a politician in office who has really inspired visceral dislike, who has really alienated and antagonized a lot of people. And I think that is the case with Lori Lightfoot. I just don't know how many of those voters there are. Is that going to be enough to keep her out of the runoff? There are going to be so many people who are like in anybody but Lori, uh, in the anybody but Lori camp that she's She's truly hosed. You know, on the other hand, I think that um, talking about lanes and bases, this is still a town where uh, racial politics are more subtle than they used to be, but uh, they still exist. And I have heard the sentiment expressed that, um, you know, we have a sitting black mayor and we should stick with her. You know, I, I think she's definitely going to, she's already started to, hint at that. And I would expect we might hear more of that kind of thing from Lori, although she has to do it in a very skillful way because uh, she herself doesn't live in the middle of the traditional South and West side black communities in Chicago and was elected with a lot of North side white people supporting her. So she wants to hold on to as many of them as possible, but she also um, wants to keep beating that drum about, oh, I'm the one who has made an uh, important investment, a commitment to investing in, in underserved communities on the South and West sides and so on. Um, we're going to keep hearing from her about that. I think as, as we get closer in the next few weeks. Uh, and, uh, if you want to hear the, uh, argument made for, uh, why, uh, uh, the black community should vote for uh, Lori Lightfoot. Uh, just check out the Mark Sims interview I did last week. Mickey must have pondered that. Uh, that was one of his favorite themes uh, in that interview. Shout out Mark Sims. Uh, all right. I gotta, I've probably asked you this before, but I haven't asked you this in a while. And so I'd love to get your riff on your take on this and hear you riff on it. Um, so everybody, Lori Lightfoot's exceedingly unpopular with other politicians. And, to quote you, being as fair as I can possibly be, I do not see, I think I've said this to you many times, that much of a difference 
in terms of how she treats other people than Ram and Daly, who are in their own way equally as arrogant, equally as contemptuous of other people, either equally as disdainful of other people. Uh, and yet I, I never heard the chorus of whining and crying <laughs> as I've heard with uh, Lori Lightfoot. As I love to point out, Mayor Daly threatened to kill Mick Dumpke, okay? Uh, and uh, <laughs> so he's, you know, he said he was going to put a gun up his ass and shoot it. It's true story we've talked about on the show many times. So, Mick, what is it, in your humble opinion, reflecting upon this, about Lori Lightfoot or what changes in Chicago and in, in the culture uh, that people object to bossy behavior when they didn't object to it when it was Rahm Emanuel uh, and Mayor Richard M. Daly? Well, I think there's a couple layers to it, right? I mean, I think under Daly in particular, um, his bad boy behavior was always sort of brushed off as, well, he really loves Chicago. And, um, you know, he's not looking for another job. And, you know, look how well the city's doing under his leadership. And you need somebody tough. This is a job for tough people. We heard all that kind of stuff over and over again, particularly in the in the Richie Daly years. And then Rom came in and Rom's style was different. Rom didn't uh well maybe a little I was gonna say Rom didn't pretend he was an all Chicago guy, but that's not true. He he certainly how many times do we hear the story of his uncle, the uh Chicago cop, right? And him uh dropping little clues here and there about his longstanding ties to the city. Uh but the point is that you know Rom try to play it a different way. I mean, Rom, um, you know, Rom tried to play it as I'm here to do this, this, and this. And Rom was very skillful at setting goals that sounded ambitious, but were actually things he knew he could check off the list. Um, you know, whether he actually solved any any serious in-depth problems or he just did something or issued a statement or had some kind of superficial program, he was very smart about saying, I'm going to do this. And then, you know, issuing kind of some kind of statement, holding an event and checking it off the list. That was his style. And in terms of his bad behavior, yeah, his sense of humor, quote unquote, was, was very mocking. I heard him mock people, reporters asking questions a lot, um, but he would sort of, ah, ha, 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 ha. But if you listen to it, it was actually kind of condescending. So we get to Lori and, you know, Lori um, is obviously very smart and and knows the city from, from working inside it, even though she portrayed herself as an outsider, independent outsider, she was very much an insider. And, uh, but she still has a real chip on her shoulder. And we, we've talked and you've talked with other guests about Lori's blowups with people and grudges and all this kind of thing. We don't have to spend a lot of time on it, but what is the, you're asking, what is the difference in how she is perceived? I mean, I do think some of it is that, um, you know, she is a, uh, a, a small statured black woman and that, you know, people, uh, that, that she, feels that she has to show that she's tough all the time and that other people uh, want something different from her. And that finally uh, people are, like you said, kind of sick of the boss 
bullying kind of stuff on a certain level. They at least want to say that they're sick of it. And you you don't get to just chew people out the same way. You don't, you know, you and I are sports fans. You don't get to be a coach stomping on the sidelines, screaming. Uh, that's not a good look anymore. Back in the day, Bob Knight was lifted up as someone who was so intense and what a brilliant tactician he is. And okay, well, the temper's a little bit out of control now and then, but like, that just kind of goes with Bobby. Yeah, that stuff isn't acceptable anymore, right, Ben? So I think it's a combination of all those kind of things is shifting mores, different expectations for Lori, some of which she set up herself. And there probably is uh, some sexism involved, um, at least, you know, on some level. Yeah, well, for the record, I didn't like it when any of the mayors did it. <laughs> is there, uh, I didn't like uh, Daly's reign. I didn't like Rom's reign, and I don't like Lori's reign. So I, I'm really struggling. Agreed, but but you you were in the minority. Yes. for the first two mayors. Yes, and now there are more people joining you and saying I don't like it either. And so why is that? And I, I you know, I, I'm I'm not I'm not excusing Lori's behavior by saying oh everyone who's criticizing her for being a jerk is somehow sexist. No, I'm just saying, I think the expectations are that she's supposed to behave differently, both because times have changed, but also because of identity politics. Yeah. And, and I, and I say, I find myself, <laughs> I find myself like when I hear the reaction, oh, how mean she is and this and that, I'm like, where were you guys back in the days of daily? It was me and Mick Dumkey. Okay, that was about it. Well, you know what I'm saying? It's like, where were you when it really mattered, when we really had an all-powerful mayor? You were like, oh, he's such a wonderful mayor. He loves Chicago. Right. Oh, my That's God, right. I love these trees he's planted. Uh, and where are all those people defending Lori now, for yes, that matter? You know, point. right? You know, yeah. so they, they stuck up for the bad behavior of these other guys. And, oh, Chicago needs somebody who's really strong, who's really tough, which – they apply not just to someone's temperament, by the way, but just to their whole bullying style, undemocratic, undemocratic style of politics, which in is really more important for citywide than, than someone's personal demeanor, even though that's an issue too. I, listen, I'll go one step further, Mick. I, I, I think I'm going to write a column about this. So I'm using you as a sounding board. There was a cult of daily. I think of the cult of Trump. There was a cult of daily. And I know I've told you this, but um, before, but I remember Lakefront liberals telling me in the '90s uh, that Daly's actually a really brilliant thinker. Man. He, he reads books, and he you got to get him alone. I'm like, I've never seen any sign of this on the public level. Stop, stop trying to feed me whatever BS you have bought. You know what I'm saying? I, when, when I'm a Lakefront liberal, would try to tell me how smart Mayor Daly really was, Ben. And then remember my thing about Rom and the books he read, which I couldn't believe. I oh remember. man, that is, I'm still <laughs> laughing about that. Yeah, Rom re- list, released a list of like these really ambitious, like 500 page histories that he said that he read like on a summer vacation, and it's yeah. like. Then <laughs> you you came right out and said, I do not believe that he read these books. And I will never forget another person uh whom we both know who saw Rom supposedly on like a either vacation or a weekend getaway in southwest Michigan, not far from my hometown, by the way. Um 
and they saw Rom at the beach with his family. Yeah. And <laughs> his wife and kids were enjoying the sun and swimming in the lake. <laughs> and this person said the entire time, Rom paced back and forth along the beach talking on his cell phone. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I imagine Rom doing on a family vacation is uh, wheeling and dealing just like he always did. And uh, I'm not saying he's not a bright guy, but like, I just don't know how he, and in fairness to Rom, you and I went over his, we wrote stories about his daily schedule and, you know, it was even in one of those stories that I think you wrote the line, which was, you know, this is Ben's in fairness line, everybody, uh, <laughs> which was that, you know, the guy worked long days. I mean, you know, his days started at like five or six in the morning and ended quite late. So even if you're a big Rom fan, you have to say, when did you have time to read Absolutely. all these books? You know, no way. No. no way. And so, Very, so really it's a statement about Chicago and, uh, and Chicagoans need to believe again, we go back to the all powerful mayor, the concept that the mayor watches over us. The mayor is wise. The mayor would not allow something bad to happen to us. The mayor is smart. The mayor it's, it's, it's a cult. It's a cult. It's, I mean, I'm not saying it's as bad as the cult that they have in North Korea, but it's a cult and it's, I don't think it's as well. I'd say it's very comparable to Maga's cult, uh, for Trump. And um, part of the cult, Rom and Daly had to show that they were smart. And part of showing you're smart is showing that you read a book. And your point was so good. When we took apart Rom's schedule, there was no time to read a book in his busy, busy schedule, which began with him waking up at some ungodly hour to go swimming, right? Because that was his thing. He wanted to be physically fit. The mayor is also physically fit. It's like Mao back in the day swimming across the Yangtze River or something like that. Rom had to go do a triathlon. It's like Putin appearing shirtless on the horse or whatever, right? Yes. <laughs> and that's Chicagoans with their mayor. And I think it's actually healthy. And my, I really do believe it's a healthier attitude to not regard the mayor as this all-powerful sun god or goddess, you know, around which the world <laughs> rotates. Um, yeah, and and so to get back to the current race, like I think you know, Lori has tried to play into this too much. You know, may, maybe she is just an irascible person who you know, screams at staff and gets into these uh, arguments with people that she won't let go of or whatever. But I don't know, part of it felt like she came in from the beginning showing everybody that wanting to show everybody she was so tough that uh, she, she kind of overperformed in that way. Um, I don't know, but anyway, it's be, it's the point is that uh, it's become part of the narrative of her tenure. And well, yeah. Um, so I, when I look at the mayoral candidates and try to project what kind of mayor they would be, um, I have a sense that Paul Vallis would try to go back to the daily days and be the autocrat that daily was. I think that's a role he would be very comfortable with. Uh, the other leading candidates for mayor, I don't know. I can't, I don't have a sense of them. Jesus Garcia. I, I, you, Mick, I just, I don't know what kind of mayors they would be. Do you follow what I'm saying? There's not enough of a record 
I, w- I didn't, wouldn't have predicted Lori Lightfoot would be like this. She totally bamboozled me when you and I were interviewing at the hideout, as I point out all the time. She didn't bamboozle Mick Dumkey, ladies and gentlemen, but she bamboozled me. Um, so anyway, all right, let's move on from the mayor and talk city council. And um, I'm just uh, endlessly obsessed and fascinated by the city council. I find it one of the most interesting legislative bodies uh, in the world. I'll say that. They're just... We do a show once a month with Dave Goetz, Mick, where he comes on and he has excerpts of the city council meetings, and we play the aldermen uh, and their uh, speeches. It's, I find it one of my favorite shows. It's fascinating. And then we we riff on them. And just to listen to the aldermen, uh, and, you know, we make fun of them, but a lot of them are smart people, and they understand how government works. They understand uh, parliamentary procedure. A lot of it is debates over minutiae of what's legal and what's not legal, what's a rule and a not a rule. And the city council, they're debating Lori Lightfoot, who's also pretty fast on her feet. Uh, and then they get into the issues of the day. And I watch how they maneuver and manipulate and try to come up with a justification for whatever they're doing. I find it a fascinating uh, council to watch, endlessly fascinating, and I know you share that. And I see, and I am encouraged. Please talk me away from this little piece of naivete that I'm about to offer you. Uh, I'm encouraged by their drift toward independence. Uh, I think that's a healthy sign uh, for Chicago uh, that this city council is willing. In so many ways, we've seen this. Uh, Matt Martin challenging the mayor's ability to pick. Uh, you know, the chairs of committees is one classic case. Uh, uh, so I do feel like we're heading in a good direction with the Chicago City Council as much as people make fun of them. Uh, your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think uh, I agree with you, And first of all. Second of all, it's all relative. Um, I don't think this mayor has lost any significant vote. Um which is in in keeping with the previous mayors. And you can say that's because of the skill of, of her and her team to whip votes and or to uh, keep legislation off the floor until they have the right people. I mean, I think that's part of it. But fundamentally, I can't I don't think there's a significant issue that the mayor, Mayor Lightfoot, like her predecessors, has uh, had a full retreat on. Um, so power still rests very much with the mayor. And the fact that um, most alder people, Matt Martin and a handful of others being the exceptions, but the fact is that most alder people have given their authority to the mayor to decide who the city council's own leaders are. I mean, that's ridiculous. Can you imagine the president of the United States, any president choosing who the house speaker will be and who, you know, the uh, party leaders in the, in the house or the Senate will be. No, the, the members of the house and the Senate do that. I'm sure the president throws, you know, uh, his weight around, but, uh, they choose the members, you know, have vigorous debates about who's going to lead them and, and even the rules of how legislation is going to proceed, let alone the final votes on issues. 
And so in the city council, that entire process is still dominated by the executive. If you look at legislation, if you get really wonky, you go to the city clerk's website and you pull down all the legislation that has been introduced to the council and all the legislation that has been passed, the vast majority, almost all significant legislation was drafted by and, and introduced by the mayor or the mayor's office. And the stuff that is led by older people generally is uh, very ward level stuff with some exceptions. So big picture, mayor still dominates the process, but it's all relative. You and I used to basically celebrate flashes of independence <laughs> when five people would vote against one of Mayor Daly's budget. Yeah, yeah. Just to say like, wow, there's a couple people who are still awake and not just saying yes to everything. So from there to the mayor having to work harder to make concessions, to make compromises where it's very regular for, you know, 19, 20 some people to say no or to speak out against something. Um, I think that the, 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 legislative debate, the legislative process is more vigorous in the city council. And hopefully you'll keep trending that way. We're not, we're not asking for everything to come to a standstill, but it is nice to hear more perspectives of city residents represented in the council. And I do think that's happening. I think it's a healthy thing. And uh, we, we had a field day with all the deferred publishers uh, that have gone on over the last few years, you know, uh, uh, as the alderman, a defer and publish, which listeners to this show know what it is because we talk about it endlessly, uh, was so rare uh, in the days of, I, I don't think they ever deferred and published during the days of daily. Maybe you can remember an instance, uh, I don't know, maybe big box or something, but I, uh, it was just so rare and unthinkable. Could, would they dare to defy daily, you know, uh, with the sunrise in the morning if they did that? And, uh, uh, and and it just was a routine thing uh, in over the last couple of years in the Chicago City Council. Uh, so I take that as a healthy sign. I, I'm pretty sure that the mayor's allies may have deferred and published a couple times in those in those years when something kind of snuck through and seemed to get momentum. Um, I'm not prepared enough to tell you what the example was, but that was the first time I heard it heard of that as, as a legislative procedure was, uh, you know, conversations about, um, how something could be stopped. So your point is well made though. That is, uh, something that the mayor's, uh, opponents, um, or, or just people favoring legislation, uh, or being opposed to something the mayor's pushing, uh, you know, something they've really picked up on and started to use more. Uh, and uh, I can't leave this talk of politics with you without your thoughts on uh, how uh, crime and policing has been uh, an issue in this uh, campaign season, both on the automatic, but also mainly on the mayor- mayoral stage. Uh, it's a huge issue. You're going to be uh, uh, moderating a forum in the 50th Ward, Deborah Silverstein, Louise Bowani. And I'm telling you, Mick, the, the people who come up with the questions, it'll probably be the first bunch of questions they want you to ask or to be a whole collection of questions on this issue uh it's it's dominating uh the conversation what's your general thoughts about this uh, as a guy who's 
written many articles down through the years about the criminal justice system? Well, it's so complicated. Uh, there's so many ways to go at it, but just as a political issue, it's not surprising, right? I mean, people are shaken up um, by what they're hearing, what they're experiencing. Um, you know, if you covered, like you and I have, if you've covered ward races outside of the North Lakefront um, in years past, you know, this was an issue for many elections. This is almost always an issue in city council elections. Uh, people have been struggling with this. I mean, I remember going to a debate in West Englewood in uh, 2011, and that's what candidates were talking about. So in some parts of the city, this is not new, but the fact that there have been so many uh, shootings that have gotten so much attention downtown and in other areas that traditionally haven't had them, it's just turned it into almost a citywide conversation. And you mentioned the 50th Ward. That's one of those places where there have been a number of uh, horrible shootings, uh, robberies that ended in fatalities, and uh, people are just wondering what's going on. They they don't they want some answers, and most people understand that answers are uh, the the reasons behind all this are complicated. But they're voters. It's election time. They're going to put people on the hot seat and say, "Tell me something." So the danger of all this, as you and I know, is that having watched cycles of this on the local and national uh, political scene that uh, people can start to make politicians can start to make promises that um, if they keep can be, you know, either band-aid quick fixes or, or very damaging in the long term. I mean, that's how we got the war on drugs and so forth and so on. So you not only have to press candidates for answers, but also keep following up and, uh, ask what's realistic, ask if something has a, a real chance of, of working in the short run and, and what consequences might be. Yeah, no, I, I, um, I talk about this a lot, uh, when you're on the show, but also when you're not, you wrote a, a story for the reader that I, I just think should be required reading for absolutely anyone who wants to uh, be a leader in the city of Chicago about retaliatory culture, uh, in the city, uh, and how it has such an impact. Uh, on crime and shootings. And um, I have never heard, it, it made so much sense when I read it, like analyzing crime in Chicago as like a cultural phenomenon of the city of Chicago. Uh, and and then adding to that the availability of guns, weapons. Uh, it was a very volatile situation. I think this story is uh, 10 years old. And uh, it's it's upsetting that I don't believe any uh, any of the debate that we've been having talks about the issues that you uh, raised in your story. It was 10 years ago. You know, uh, we knew the war on drugs was a complete failure and had a counter effect from what we wanted. Tony Preckwinkle as much told us that when we interviewed her. She was one of the few, I give her credit, for taking an alternative view on that. And yet we persisted on the war on drugs for, I don't know, how many years after you and I started doing those reefer stories, maybe five or six years, I can't remember. And it, it's like, Mick, no, it just seems to me that no one is, we're like determined to be ignorant 
and pay the consequences from that ignorance. I find it very frustrating. Uh, do you feel the same way? I mean, you're the guy who wrote the article. Do you feel Yeah, absolutely. And, and the, the article was about, you're right, it was about retaliatory violence. It was about um, the culture of gun ownership. And I think a lot of people, uh, a lot of people don't understand. Uh, well, first of all, we're flooded with guns. The police department, one of their major strategies, there's, you know, spoken and unspoken is to seize as many unlicensed weapons as they can, um, which makes sense on one level to a lot of people on the other level, like uh, it's not stopping the flow of guns into the city and it's not stopping the demand for guns. So I think a lot of people don't realize that um, in some communities, uh, people, especially people who are on the street, think it's crazy to not have a weapon. Like why, how could you, how could you risk being caught without a gun? And so there is uh, just an, an overarmed situation there, um, which doesn't explain carjackings and some of the other stuff we're seeing. But I, I guess the broader point, Ben, is that, uh, cause we could spend hours and, and many shows talking about this. We have talked about it in many shows, but I think, political season is, um, the one thing I'm really encouraged about, I'll put it this way. The one thing I'm really encouraged about is that there are candidates with a lot of different kinds of solutions they're trying to bring to the table here. So there are people who are saying we need more than just more police. My frustration is that often it, you know, people feel like they're forced into one of two camps. They're either pro-cop, they're anti-cop. I either want to grow the budget, the police budget. I want to cut the police budget. Uh, personally, I think it's not helpful to put people in those two camps. I'm, I think it's not helpful to be absolutely in one of those camps or another. Um, fighting crime today, this year, is a little bit different from coming up with strategies to prevent it in the long run. Uh, so let's just hope the conversations lead to something productive. And, and I can say that I... I think you've heard it too. People just want to hear, they want to be reassured that there is a plan. And I think one of the major failures of the Lightfoot Brown tenure here is uh, whatever strategies they're doing, people don't understand them and they don't believe they're working. And a big part of public safety and the perception of public safety is getting buy-in from the public and they just don't have it right now. Yeah. No, that, uh, that much is uh, very clear. Uh, and we say all the time, it was really uh, obvious in that showdown. This is the second interview today where I recalled the showdown between Lori Lightfoot and Rayla Raymond Lopez in the aftermath of the George Floyd murder when they were rioting all over the city of Chicago. And Lori Lightfoot's policy was to raise the bridges so the rioters couldn't get into the downtown area. And Raylo confronted her in a private meeting, which, by the way, was illegal, violated the State Open Meetings Act, but whatever. Let's put that aside. Uh, and it was a meeting convened for the mayor to tell the alderman what, she, uh, what the strategy was, what the policy was. And Rayla was like, what is the policy? What is the strategy? What have you done other than divert the rioters into my neighborhood and neighborhoods like mine? And she told him that he was full of shit. And I'm like, wow, that's where we're at in the city of Chicago right now. You know, it was, uh, I mean... In retrospect, when I think about it, Mick, I'm like, this just goes to show you how clueless our leaders are. 
They, I mean, again, the McDumpkey line. In in fairness to Lori Lightfoot, <laughs> I don't know what I would do either, you know? Uh, <laughs> but then again, I'm not the mayor. So. Yeah, it's it's a tough, a tough job at a tough time. But, uh, you know, as the saying goes, that's uh, that's the job. You got to yeah. put in your your big girl, big boy pants and and do the job. So, all right. Uh, we'll close. We're not going to discuss my beloved bulls because it's too painful of that loss. <laughs> the other day, you and so. I are still representing both of us. <laughs> oh right my now. God. So, I did not realize yeah. I thought he's wearing a bull yeah. sweatshirt. Ladies and gentlemen, this guy has undergone a transition. Uh, he's become a diehard bulls fan in the last five or so years. It's remarkable from where he was when I first met him. Uh, I, and, I was I was suffering from a post uh, championship post Jordan uh, <laughs> depression when when you and I first got together. Yeah. It lasted quite a while, but yeah, I'm I'm fully back, and man, it is a yo-yo experience oh, this yeah. year. That is oh, for sure. So. It is so bizarre. I was so happy after Monday's win. I was just I was at the game with my new Bulls hat, and then they just collapsed. Uh, so, but I went, your other uh, love, uh, of course, uh, Robert Zimmerman, Bob Dylan, uh, and you dutifully read Bob Dylan's new book, which is uh, a collection of his thought, uh, thoughts. Uh, essay. There it is. He has a copy of it, ladies and gentlemen. Philosophy of Modern Song yes. by Bob Dylan. Yeah. So uh, let's, a mini a Mick Dumpke book review on Bob Dylan's new book. Take it away, Mick. I would say that it is very entertaining, especially if you are a music lover, and especially if you're a Bob Dylan music lover. Um, it's really, it's fun. Uh, what I really like about it is that um, despite being an avid record collector and uh, you know music junkie, especially uh, from the rock and roll era, the blues era, um, there's a lot of stuff in here I'd never heard of. And I think that was part of his point was to try to introduce people to some obscurities, uh, lots of old country and Western songs, lots of, um, I, I knew most of the blues stuff in there, but lots of old, uh, I guess it's almost like pop pre rock and roll pop music in there. Um, which I hadn't heard of. And I, I appreciate that. Um, my critique is that, okay, and also on the good side, is that there are many places in the book where you can tell how much Bob loves these songs, and I I love Bob's love for the songs, and there are places where like the historical context of how the song came about, either by the artist or the place that it was set. The, the first song is a country song I'd never heard of in Detroit. He's writing about what Detroit was like in, in the fifties. Like that stuff is great. Less successful, I think is Bob's riffing yeah. on, <laughs> on the lyrics of the song. Like Bob, I just listened to the song. I don't need you to tell me what the lyrics said. Yeah. And he sort of tries to get in the character of the narrator of the song or, or people who are, sung about in the song and he kind of goes off from there and a lot of that is very skimmable or skippable in my view even for a dylan fan i just was like a little bit goes a long way so i, I like the stuff that he knew and loved and researched and the stuff where he was just kind of like this is me getting in the head of this character in this obscure country song 
it didn't work that well for me. Uh, so that I agree with that critique hundred uh, percent. Skimmable and skippable. Good chunks of this book are skimmable and skippable. I recommend. Furthermore, that uh, if you're curious, go to your local library and check it out. It's an expensive book. Is uh, unless you're a Bob Dylan. Uh, you know, fanatic who it collects everything. He just came out. I don't know if you saw this, make a box set of like, uh, <laughs> incredible. So much music. Yeah. It was like an album. Which album was it? Like, so uh, I can't remember. Oh, it was an album from the nineties when, uh, a lot of people have given up on Dylan and he was still cranking them out. And so now there's a box set of like takes from the album. Uh, that's amazing. There's it, so much. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm a fanatic. I have, I have a, bunch of his cds from the 90s and 2000s and i've got most of his 60s 70s and 80s albums on vinyl you know and i'm still i still don't have like a couple dozen of them myself and i'm like i'm a fanatic like yeah it's just an incredible incredible output well and uh so i go to these phases where that's it i'm through with dylan the guy is annoying. Half the stuff he puts out there, he's just thrown at the wall and suckers are lapping it up. I am done with Bob Dylan. So I had on as a, a, a guest the other day or other week, uh, a gentleman I met in LA who's a Bob Dylan cover singer and a Bob Dylan cover band. And uh, so of course I brought him on uh, and he did. Uh, it's all over now, baby blue. And uh, Mick, when I was, I was reading the lyrics while he sang it and I was like, this opening uh, stanza is so good. Uh, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, I got to give Bob Dylan a little more love. <laughs> right back, right well, back Dave, band yeah, no, for sure. David Crosby died. When was that last week? And I'm, I'm not, I, I, I think we share a, uh, you have a distaste for, I, I, I don't dislike, but I'm not a huge fan of, of Crosby, Stills and Nash, but I do love the birds. And I especially love the birds when they were channeling, covering Bob Dylan. And so in honor of David Crosby's passing, I pulled out the first birds album, which has four Dylan songs on the album, including of course, Mr. Tambourine man, which is one of those songs I can I can hear an infinite number of times and never get sick of. I just think it's a masterpiece. But the song I really love is Spanish Harlem Incident, which is like, if you out there don't know this song, go find it. The, the Birds version is great. The Dylan original on another side of Bob Dylan is amazing. And it's like of all the great Bob Dylan songs, I feel like that one kind of slips in under the radar. And it's the same thing as you're saying, Ben. The lyrics are just it's poetry. I mean, it's just poetry. And, and the song itself is the music is beautiful too. So yeah, that's why I love Dylan for moments like that, you know? Yeah. And by the way, uh, I, if you're going to get the book, re, if you want to read one section and only in my humble opinion, it would be his, uh, take on the song, Edwin Starr's song war. I urge everybody, if you're going to get the Dylan book out of the library, read that because Bob Dylan justifying war, not the song, but the concept of a war, uh, he's almost like a, uh, a neoliberal defending uh, Bush's invasion of uh, Iraq, although he critiques that as well. So, um, yeah, it was it's a it's a, actually a pretty good essay on its own right, isn't yeah. it? It's like the song is almost in the background, and it prompts him to sort of go on this 
Absolutely. In this place, you know, and this is from a guy who in his very first album, Master, wrote a song, Masters of War, where he said he hoped that the people starting all the wars in the world would die. Like he called for that in one of his early songs. And so to get this, this essay from him where he's talking about like, is it really all, is every single war unjust? You know, lots of people have been freed from slavery through wars and, and things like that. You're right. It's, it's worth reading. Well, so in regards to what he, what, the difference, Nick, you never can forget. He was so much older then. He's younger than that now. Uh, <laughs> and with that. Uh, great way to stop. Yes. <laughs> that's a great place to stop. Uh, Mick, tell folks uh, where they can reach you if they got tips. Uh, for great investigative, this is Mr. Investigations at Black Club, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, so just give out that info if people, you know, they maybe have some good story ideas for you. So go ahead. Absolutely. Please want to hear from you. Investigations at blockclubshy.org is the email. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm sort of hanging on uh, a little bit on Twitter, kind of in and out. But you can reach me that way too. Mickey D1971 on Twitter. Yeah, I've noticed you're really backing away from Twitter, which is a whole interesting conversation for another time. Mick Dumkey's attitude towards Twitter. Uh, I could tell you're not into it. I did the deep dive before we did the show. And I'm like, God damn, Mick, you know, I don't know how you're like me now. Next thing you know, you're going to get off altogether. Um, all right. Thanks a lot, Mick. I really appreciate it. Hey, Ben, always great to join you. Uh, we have a good time. And everybody should know, this is kind of how our conversations on their phone are like. It's almost <laughs> the exact same thing yeah, as except, my appearances on the show. Except so. there's like a half hour of sports talk that I cut out uh, yeah, from, right, from this exactly. conversation. Uh, all right. All right. That, that's Mick Dumkey. I'm Ben Drafton. Take care, everybody. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.